Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Coming up on the science revolution, is the coronavirus about to show us the cost of not having Medicare for all? Former health insurance executive Wendell Potter, public health professor at George Washington University, Dr. Lena Wen, and author of The Coming Plague, Lori Garrett, all join me for the most up-to-date information on the new pandemic coronavirus. Stay tuned. Tom Hartman here with you. And here we are in the United States. We do not have a national health care system. I mean, literally, we do not have a national health care system, unlike every other developed country in the world. And only three out of the 100 public health labs in the United States, public, you know, federally funded public health labs, only three are able to test for the COVID-19 virus, this Wuhan virus or coronavirus, whatever you want to call it. That's according to the Association of Public Health Libraries. And the tests cost 250 bucks a whack. What has Trump done about this? China has now uh, put 100 million citizens in lockdown. A huge national quarantine. They are building quarantine hospitals in days time. How does the United States respond to this? A great article over at foreignpolicy.com by Lori Garrett, who's been a guest on this program. She wrote a book called The Coming Plague back, geez, 15 years ago. She basically predicted what we're looking at right now. And that book really deserves a revival. It was a brilliant book at the time. I read it. I'm pretty sure she wrote it even before we started our show. It might have been more like 20 years ago. It was quite a while ago. But uh, Lori Garrett has been on our program before. And she points out the Obama administration created a permanent epidemic monitoring command group inside the National Security Council, the White House uh, NSC, and another one, a redundant one, in the Department of Homeland Security, DHS. Both are now gone. Trump shut them down. In the spring of 2018, Lori Garrett writes in foreignpolicy.com, in the spring of 2018, the White House pushed Congress to cut funding for Obama-era disease security programs, proposing to eliminate $252 million in previously committed resources for rebuilding health systems in Ebola, Ravage, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea. They reduced $15 billion in national health spending and cutting the global disease-fighting operational budgets of the CDC, the NSC, the DHS, and HHS. The government's $30 million complex crises fund, which is how the government would respond to something like the Wuhan virus starting to spread significantly in the United States. Trump eliminated that altogether. In May of 2018, Trump ordered the National Security Council's entire global health security unit to be shut down and called for the reassignment of Rear Admiral Timothy Zimmer. He was the guy in charge of it and the dissolution of his team inside the agency. Neither the National Security Council epidemic team nor the DHS, Department of Health and Services, epidemic teams have been replaced. Trump fired them all. 
The global health section of the CDC was so drastically cut, Lori Garrett writes, in 2018, that much of its staff was laid off and the number of countries it was working in was reduced from 49 to merely 10. Meanwhile, throughout 2018, the U.S. Agency for International Development and its director, Mark Green, repeatedly came under fire from both the White House and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. And those Congress has so far managed to block Trump administration plans to cut the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps by 40 percent. The disease-fighting cadres have steadily eroded as retiring officers are not being replaced by the Trump administration. What Trump has done, basically, is make it almost impossible for the federal government. He has dissolved the infrastructure within our federal government that could respond to an epidemic crisis. And he's done it in the name of, you know, we're Republicans, we hate the government. I mean, that's the bottom line, right? Ronald Reagan, in his inaugural address, I'm here to tell you that government is not the solution to your problems, it is the cause of your problems. This has been the Republican mantra since 1981 kill the government. And Trump has put this on steroids. He is killing our national security systems. He is killing our intelligence agencies. He's killing our Justice Department. And by killing, I'm literally, they're deconstructing these things. They're firing people. They moved all the scientists with the Environmental Protection Agency from Washington, D.C. to Kansas City, Missouri. Said, let's get them out in the boondocks. Half of them couldn't go. They had families in D.C. Oh, that's great. We get to lay off half of them. Mind-boggling. There are 150 different drugs sold in the United States that are exclusively manufactured in China, which is very concerning. We, it's one of the reasons I suggested the other day that you talk to your doctor about getting a 90-day supply if you take an essential medication. The guy who doubled the price of insulin when he was at Eli Lilly, Alex Azar, he's now our head of health and human services because Trump always puts lobbyists in charge of everything, right? He was asked repeatedly yesterday before Congress, Jan Schakowsky was questioning him, when an, a vaccine is developed to deal with this, and of course, large chunks of the funding for that are coming from your tax dollars and mine through the National Institutes of Health. When a vaccine is developed, can you guarantee us that it'll be affordable to everybody in the country? And he repeatedly said, no, he wouldn't. He didn't want to interfere with the so-called free market. I mean, this is pretty crazy. Meanwhile, the Trump budget continues to assert that the Centers for Disease Control should be cut by $700 million. Japan is talking about canceling or postponing the Olympics. Italy has locked down 50,000 people in 10 northern towns. They've closed schools, universities, and other educational centers in 14 different provinces, the equivalent of our states. The number of new coronavirus cases outside China has doubled every five and a half days since January. And this is where it gets really mind-boggling. And this is now confirmed. There were a bunch of people who had not tested positive for the coronavirus who contacted a Republican member of Congress. Apparently one of these folks was good friends with a Republican member of Congress. You don't know who that member of Congress was, but it was a Republican who was close enough to Trump to whisper in his ear, or maybe Pompeo, and say, get us out of here. There were 14 people who were showing symptoms of this disease, so they tested everybody and they found that, sure enough, these 14 people all have the coronavirus. And they're sitting in an airport in Tokyo. Not the public airport, but, you know, a military airport. 
And so the CDC said those 14 people who we know are infected and are currently shedding viruses, those people should be shipped back to the United States for treatment in a separate airplane. They should not be thrown into a giant airplane where everybody's breathing the same air and touching the same bathroom door knobs and things like that with the other 320 some odd people, American citizens who are being repatriated, who not only show no symptoms, but actually test negative for the virus. CDC said use two airplanes. Two agencies, two federal agencies were in charge of this, Health and Human Services, that's Alex's Azar, the guy who doubled the price of pharmaceuticals when he was the CEO of Lilly, Eli Lilly, the drug company. Now he's head of HHS. And Mike Pompeo, who has absolutely no public health experience. He was a, you know, a right-wing congressman. That's, that's what he did. He was a Tea Partier. And he's in charge of the State Department. So the Centers for Disease Control, Anthony Fauci, who has now been muzzled, by the way, he's been told not to talk to the public anymore. Everything has to go through Mike Pence. The Centers for Disease Control said split it into two planes. Put the contaminated people on one plane, put the well people who have not been exposed to contamination on a separate plane. The CDC was overruled by the Trump administration, both the State Department and HHS, and all 300 and some odd healthy people were thrown into the same plane with the 14 people that we knew had the coronavirus, and they were flown into Travis Air Force Base in California. At the Air Force Base, all of these people, this entire collection, the 14 known infected people and the 300 plus people who seemed to not be infected, were greeted by people from the Centers for Disease Control who were wearing spacesuits. But Alex Azar's Department of Health and Human Services decided to send a group of people from a completely different agency. They sent people from the agency that basically is responsible for separating children from their families at the border and dealing with federal level child abuse things. These were the Administration for Children and Families, ACF. Basically, these are social workers. The Department of Health and Human Services sent social workers who had no medical background whatsoever to meet these 300 plus people who had just spent 14 hours locked in a cabin in an airplane with 14 people who were known to have coronavirus. They sent these people in their normal business suits, their normal day-to-day -day clothing. They met with them. They put pins or buttons or ribbons or something on them that indicated whether they were or were not infected. I'm not even sure that these people were wearing face masks. I mean, we don't know. The federal government won't tell us. What we do know is they were not given protective equipment and they were not trained in how to do this. They handed out keys to the rooms where people are staying to these people. And then none of them were tested from these people who were exposed to active coronavirus infected people. None of them were tested and none of them were quarantined. And some of them lived in this local community. One of them got on a commercial airplane and he could be shedding viruses all over the seats. This is starting to make me nervous. I'm getting on a plane tomorrow to Chicago. So after this happens and these people go back out into the community, now we've got this woman in the hospital who doesn't know any of these people, has nothing to do with the Air Force Base that was 10 miles from her home and from the town she lives in. And again, this is my opinion. I'm not a medical expert, but it seems to me that probably what happened was 
one of these people who had contact with the infected people, one of these people that Alex Azar sent in there, our Department of Health and Human Services, or Mike Pompeo sent in the State Department, after they ignored the advice of the CDC, one of those people who greeted them, got infected, was not yet symptomatic, was walking through town, went shopping, bought something, stopped at some store, opened a door with their hand into a McDonald's or a Starbucks or anything, could be anything, and then this woman came along and she opened the same door with her hand or touched the same countertop and she got the virus and she's in the hospital now. I mean, it's got, this is what's called community transmission. And this is what we have right now. So a whistleblower in the Department of Human, Health and Human Services takes this to her boss and says, you know, this is not right. I've got people freaking out. Some of those social workers to meet the airplane with no protective gear, they're starting to freak out. And she was told, you are now demoted and moved to a different division. You no longer have people working for you. And if you don't accept this demotion, you're fired. So we've got another whistleblower that the Trump administration is trying to destroy after they screwed up royally. This is just mind-boggling. The incompetence of this administration, the guy who is the acting head of the Department of Homeland Security, which used to have before 2018, a division that looked at epidemiology and epidemic diseases, a position created by Barack Obama during his presidency in response to the Ebola outbreak in Africa. That agency was shut down and the guy in charge of it was fired by Trump in 2018 because after all, it was something Obama did. The Department of Homeland Security literally doesn't even have a division that deals with this kind of stuff any longer. And Chad Wolf, who was the acting head, was before Congress yesterday. And they said, do you know what the fatality rate is from this coronavirus? And he said, well, it appears to be a little, uh, you know, around 2%, a little above 2%. But we're guessing that it's actually lower than that because there's probably a lot of cases that are not being diagnosed, which is accurate, more or less. And then they said, so what's the mortality rate for the flu? And he said, it's about the same. It's around 2%. I'm sorry, that's wrong. The mortality rate for the flu is one-tenth of 1%, which means out of every 1,000 people who get the flu, one will die. But a 2% mortality rate for the coronavirus means out of every 100 people who get the coronavirus, two will die. Now, just let that sink in. And the head of the Department of Homeland Security, who's charged with protecting us, doesn't know the difference between the flu and the coronavirus in public, you know, under oath testimony yesterday before Congress. You know, I think one of the reasons the markets are falling, and if you were looking at the future markets yesterday, while well, Donald Trump was giving his BS press conference saying, oh, there's only 15 cases, which was a lie. The scientists just before him had said, you know, we have 60 cases that we know of. And Trump, oh, we only have 15 cases and they're all getting better. Pretty soon we're going to have none. Right. This guy has told 16,000 documented lies, documented by the uh, Washington Post. The biggest lie that anybody could come up with, the one lie from the Barack Obama administration was, if you like your health insurance company, you can keep it. And that was true, by the way, of 97% of people who moved to Obamacare. So it's not really a lie. <laughs> but, I mean... You know, the last lie that I remember a president telling in my lifetime that was a serious and consequential lie was when Lyndon Johnson said 
that we've been attacked in the Gulf of Tonkin. Or when George W. Bush and Dick Cheney said that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. But, you know, that was one lie for each. But, but here are the 16,000 lies, and now he's lied about the coronavirus. There are reasons that we need to be legitimately concerned about this. There are health reasons, but more importantly, I think right now, there are political reasons. And I'm going to talk about both the politics and the health of this entire situation. There was a fellow down in Florida. His name was Osmel Martinez Azu. He was a businessman. He had come back from China. And he came down with the symptoms of a cold. You know, he had a fever. He had a cough. He felt like crap. And he'd just been to China. So he goes to the hospital. He goes to his local hospital, to the ER, and he says, you know, I might have the coronavirus because I just came back from China and I've got these symptoms. And so the doctors there tested him. Turned out he didn't have it, which was, you know, a relief for everybody involved, and sent him home. And he was like, okay, cool. I'm, you know, going to go home. He then gets a bill in the mail for $3,270 for the emergency room visit and the test. And the Washington Post reports today he's expecting even more bills to arrive over the next few weeks. Apparently they haven't gone through all the items in the itemization. $3,270 to show up at the ER and say, I think I may have coronavirus, please test me. This is how screwed up and insane our healthcare system is. Because from the get-go, you know, the whole Republican thing, you know, remember when LBJ, well, you probably don't remember, most people watching are not old enough to remember, but in the 1960s, in uh, 1965, 66, as LBJ was putting together Medicare, and Ronald Reagan was saying, if Medicare passes, we shall have moved into the era of socialized medicine and America will no longer be a country where men are free. The Republicans were hysterical about Medicare. It's socialized medicine. Well, they're still hysterical about it. They're still trying to destroy it. So anyhow, LBJ wanted, and Robert Ball, the guy who actually wrote the Medicare bill, who wrote it in a way that a decade later, it would be possible to start lowering the age requirement and eventually have Medicare cover everybody in the country as a single-payer health care system. It was literally designed that way by LBJ and Hubert Humphrey and Robert Ball and Democratic members of Congress. Medicare was designed to be a national health care system within 10 years. But in any case, the Republicans said, you can't give people free medical care. They will abuse it. They're going to be living in the hospitals. So you've got to make people pay at least 20% of the bill. And so they built this hole into Medicare, where Medicare only covers 80% of your expenses. And what that did, of course, is it provided an opportunity for private health insurance companies to fill in that 20% hole. Those are called Medigap policies. But this was the pound of flesh that Republicans extracted in exchange for, well, actually, no Republicans voted for Medicare, but, but you know, <laughs> maybe conservative Democrats at the time, but whatever it was. We got the same thing with Obamacare. I mean, the Kaiser Family Foundation found that more than half of all people 
with health insurance to their employees have an annual deductible of at least $1,000. The average on Obamacare plans is $4,000, which means that the first $1,000, if you show up at the ER and say, I want to get tested for coronavirus, you know, it's going to cost three, $4,000. The hospital's going to bill your insurance company, and the insurance company's going to say to you, you have to pay the first $1,000. That's the way it is with Obamacare right now which is as good as we've been able to get it. And then Trump now is selling on the Obamacare exchanges these junk policies. They used to be limited at 90 days. Now they're up to three years where the health insurance company, oh, you, you don't like that $600 a month policy? How about this $300 a month policy? And the problem is that, you know, if you get sick, seriously sick, like cancer or something, it'll only pay a couple hundred thousand dollars and then that's it. You'd have no more money, period. This is why we need Medicare for all. Nancy Pelosi tweeted out the Trump budget guts nearly $700 million from the Centers for Disease Control. At the same time, Republicans in Washington are suing before the Supreme Court to end Obamacare so that if you get sick with coronavirus and you show up in the hospital and the doctor says, oh, you know, your lungs are in really bad shape, you shouldn't have been smoking. Your health insurance company will be able to say, no, we're not going to pay for any of this. That's a pre-existing condition. If there ever was a case for Medicare for all, the way that Bernie Sanders is promoting it, and Elizabeth Warren, with no deductibles, no co-pays, everything's covered like it is in every other developed country in the world, it's the coronavirus. I mean, who's going to spend $3,000 going to the hospital to get tested? And not only that, by the way, this guy in California tried to get tested. This is the Tom Hartman Program. He tried to get tested and they turned him down because the CDC guidelines said, we'll only test people who've been to China. Seriously. How did we get here? Wendell Potter used to be an executive with one of the big five, I believe it was Edna, one of the big five insurance companies, health insurance companies, these banksters. He figured out what he was doing was wrong and left the business and has been a whistleblower ever since, has, has written a brilliant book about it. He is the president now of Business for Medicare for All. The website is business for for medicare for for all.org. You can tweet him at Wendell Potter. Wendell, welcome back to the program. And remind me of the title of your book. Deadly Spin is the name of the book. Deadly Spin. And I worked for two big insurance companies over the course of 20 years, Humana and Cigna. So I know how these companies operate. Okay, so knowing how these companies operate, what kind of response can we expect, those of us who have private health insurance with one of these big health insurance companies, if we get symptoms and we're worried that it might be coronavirus? What do we do? What, how is this going to play out? I think very chaotically. And you're exactly right. People are afraid to go to the doctor, go to the ER, because they know they're very vulnerable to having a big bill come in, even if they have health insurance. And I saw this coming. One of the reasons I left my job is because I was expected to be a cheerleader for a trend in the industry that has gotten to where we are right now, and that is to push every last one of us into a high deductible plan. The consequence of that is that not only do we still have almost 30 million people in this country who don't have health insurance, you have twice that many who are now underinsured. That means their deductibles are so high, they have to pay so much out of their own pocket before their coverage kicks in, that people are not getting the care that they need already. So now as we have the very real possibility of having a real epidemic in this country, people needing and should be going to the doctor to get tested and to get care, 
afraid to do it because they're afraid of getting one of these big bills in the mail. Influenza has a fatality rate of 0.1 percent. Our head of the Department of Homeland Security was being interrogated in front of Congress, and he said he thought it was identical to that of the coronavirus, 2 percent. He was, of course, wrong. He didn't know what he was talking about. But he's the guy in charge of Homeland Security who's supposed to protect us. <laughs> God help us. <laughs> Anyhow, what that means is that one out of every thousand people who gets the flu dies from it. One out of every thousand. And the health insurance system of this country has been dealing with that for years. 35,000 people a year die, which probably means a couple hundred thousand people every year end up on respirators or end up hospitalized and some small percentage of them die. But, you know, they end up in bad shape. The coronavirus is 2.3% from what we know so far. It's probably not quite that bad because there's probably a lot of undiagnosed cases that it's being compared against. But let's say it's 2%. That means out of every hundred people, Keep in mind, one out of a thousand dies of the flu. This would be two out of every hundred people will die from the coronavirus, which means instead of out of a thousand people, there being, you know, two or three people who need hospital care and respirators and things like that, it's going to be more like seven or eight out of every hundred or 70 or 80 out of every thousand. How does our system deal with this? I think our system is very ill-equipped to deal with this for a lot of reasons. Uh, not only do we have a health insurance system that is just a profit-making operation and not caring how many people have coverage and how many people are underinsured, you've got that, but you've also got on the delivery side profit motivation that has led to a lot, many, many, many rural hospitals closing in recent years, as well as safety net hospitals. Like here in Philadelphia, where I live, one of the largest safety net hospitals that have been around for decades generations has closed because it was owned by a hedge fund team or a company. And so it was profit-taking. And here, here we are. What's the a safety net hospital, that, Wendell? Is that a, say, a hospital that kind of fills in the cracks of the rest of the healthcare system is. around it? It is. It is a hospital that is available to meet the needs of the community, regardless of insurance status, mm. uh, and treats everybody in the community. But they are especially available to people who are on Medicaid and who just don't have insurance. And we're seeing them disappear across the country as we have seen rural hospitals disappear. So people who, are, who live in small communities are now finding that they have to drive a long way to get the care that they need and are less likely to, to seek the care that they need. The other thing is that as we have been obsessed with making money in health care, we've not been investing in public health. It's estimated that three cents of every dollar that we spend on health care, only three cents goes to public health and our public health infrastructure. And I've talked to some public health officials who think that's even an overstatement. So we have such a dysfunctional and fractured healthcare system that if this becomes a real epidemic, we will see the consequences of just failing to really have a healthcare system and a healthcare infrastructure that we really need. Remarkable. So what should we be doing, Wendell Potter? I mean, you've been in, you know, a senior executive in two major health insurance companies. You know how health insurance works in this country. And by extension, you know how our health care system works. I, I know that you've done your research on other countries and how health care is done in Europe and Mexico and Canada and all over. What is the optimal system to make America resilient health-wise to things like a coronavirus epidemic? What do we need to do? And is it too late to do any of them quickly? 
Well, it's too late to do some of, you know, the ultimate solution is to move to a system in which we improve and expand the Medicare program to cover everybody. It's a program that's been around now for more than half a century and meets the needs of the oldest in our society and does it much more efficiently than private insurance companies do. And it's also secure. You can't lose it like you can a private insurance plan. So that's the ultimate solution. We need to look also to other countries to see what works well there. But again, we've got this program in place that just needs to be improved and expanded to cover everybody. This program being Medicare. That program being Medicare. It would be a much easier transition to get everyone into that than it would be to get everyone enrolled or a lot of people enrolled in the Obamacare plans because of the enormous complexity of dealing with multiple insurance companies. So it would be a much easier transition. So the real simple thing is to do, in my mind, is to do two steps. And I'd like you to reality check this for me. Step number one, we pass federal legislation that says there's no longer a 20% copay with Medicare. Medicare covers 100% of your expenses. No deductibles, no copays, number one. Number two, the eligibility age for Medicare has dropped from 65 to birth. Yeah, that's exactly right. You may do it over two or three years to get from 65 to birth, but that's exactly what we need to do. Maybe working at both ends of the age spectrum. But we can do that and we can get there in a relatively short period of time. And you're right, getting rid of the deductibles in the basic Medicare program is absolutely essential. And it is something that both the bills in the House and Senate, in the Senate sponsored by Bernie Sanders in the House by Pramila Jayapal, that would do exactly that. It would improve the basic Medicare program to right. eliminate those deductibles. And again, as we were talking, it is, the, it is that out-of-pocket requirement that is keeping so many people from getting the care that they need when they need it. Right. Remarkable. So I guess it's just a matter of political will, right? I mean, that's the bottom line. It's a matter of political will. And our politicians, to a large extent, are just our followers, not leaders. We have a few that are really leading the charge for this. Two, on the debate stage running for president, champion Medicare for all. We all need to support them. But I think other politicians are beginning to catch on. We look at the voters in the first three states. 60% of those who voted said they support Medicare for All, knowing that it would mean the elimination of private insurance companies. They want to get rid of those guys. Right. And and I guess the big question is what happens to all the people who used to work in the health insurance companies? They can work for Medicare, right? A lot of them can work for Medicare. A lot of them can go back to delivering patient care. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Wendell Potter, former health insurance executive president of business for MedicareForAll.org. Check it out. You can tweet him at Wendell Potter. Sponsoring the interview this week is New Leaf Natural CBD Oil. Boy, with all this flying around, you know, I have been doubling my CBD oil dose. I love CBD oil. It doesn't get you high, but it, and it's non-toxic, but it's a potent pain reliever and anti or it has potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties i think is the proper way to say that and the brand i trust the most is new leaf naturals nu leaf Naturals cbd oil is the highest quality cbd oil on the market it's 100 percent organic highly concentrated has no additional additives grown in the usa and the only ingredient is hemp so the product remains in its most pure and simple form Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's newleafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM. It's spelled T-H-O-M. Go to newleafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com. Code TOM, it's spelled T-H-O-M, newleafnaturals.com.
There's some other things here that I think are really worth noting. Mormons around the world are canceling leadership, key leadership events. Facebook canceled F8, its annual conference for developers. The National Symphony of Japan has canceled all their concerts. Series A's biggest match will be played in an empty stadium, televised. The Saudis have closed Mecca and Medina, Islam's holiest sites, to all foreigners. South Korea and the U.S. have postponed their annual military drills. K-pop star BTS has canceled Seoul shows. Tokyo Disneyland is now closed. And Tokyo officials say that the Olympics will be canceled, more likely to be canceled than postponed. I had earlier said they were going to be postponed. It's incredible. I mean, you know, it's, it's like, you know, the business community is figuring this stuff out. People are not going to be going to movies. People are not going to be going to malls to shop. Probably Amazon's business is going to go up substantially. Food delivery services, Grubhub or DoorDash, I guess it's DoorDash is planning on doing a, an individual public offering. I mean, this is what's going to happen. The schools are going to close in many of these communities. And frankly, it looks like this is probably going to spread across the U.S. And it might even be the new fact of life that every year we get a wave of Wuhan virus, just like we get the common cold, and 2% of the people who get it die. And where are we? We're right back where we were in 1910, basically, before the development of the sulfa drugs, which came along with World War I in the 19-teens, and then penicillin in the 1940s. We will be back to the point where every year, 2, 3, 4% of Americans simply die from an infection. It used to be a fairly common thing. It used to be that you had a urinary tract infection or a stomach infection or a lung infection before antibiotics. You know, 2, 3% of the time, it would actually kill you. So it's not like, you know, the human race and this country, for that matter, hasn't seen this kind of thing before and lived through it. It used to be normal. But the transition from what is our current normal to this new normal is going to be rather jarring. Because we're used to being able to treat everything. So, uh, you know, we'll see where this all goes. On the line with us is Dr. Lena Wen. She is an emergency room physician, public health professor at George Washington University School of Medicine. She previously served as the health commissioner for the state of Baltimore. And her Twitter handle is Dr. Dr. Lena, L-E-A-N-A Wen, W-E-N. Dr. Wen, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Tom. It's good to be back. And I just wanted to mention that I was the health commissioner for the city of Baltimore, although oh. we like to think of ourselves as a state yeah. um, sometimes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. My apologies. I used to live right next door. It's been a long week. So as an ER physician, as a professor of public health, and I don't know anybody who would have more expertise at how these things happen. I realize, well, I don't know if you've been specifically studying this coronavirus, but what's your take on how things that are as transmissible as this virus is or appears to be, given the evidence that we have? What's your take on how this is going to spread? And I'm also curious, we now know that the U.S. had evacuated just a little short of 400 people, Americans. They discovered that 14 of those people were infected with the Wuhan virus. The CDC asked that those people be flown back to America on a separate plane so they could be isolated. The State Department, Mike Pompeo's State Department and Alex Azar's Department of Health and Human Services overruled that and threw those 14 people in with the other 300 plus Americans who did not test positive. They were met at the at Travis Air Force Base in California by 
CDC people who are wearing protective, you know, spacesuits and people from the Child and Family Services Division of HHS, the group that have been separating children from their parents at the border. This is their expertise. They're basically social workers. And they were wearing normal street clothes and they met all these people and they passed out room keys and, and put you know, pins or ribbons on them to indicate their status and told them where to go stay. And then those people were never tested. One of them got on a commercial airplane, flew someplace. A couple of others have flown to other parts, you know, back to their HHS offices. And apparently several of them live in this community where this woman who's in the hospital right now is, I don't know if she's fighting for her life, but she, her condition has deteriorated so badly they had to move her to a different kind of hospital. Clearly with the Wuhan virus, and she has no contact, although the town she lives in is 10 miles from the Air Force Base where this plane came in, she's had no contact with anybody. That sounds to me like somebody who acquired that, uh, you know, one of these people that Alex Azar flew in there, acquired that virus from one of these passengers and then walked around town, you know, opening doors and things, shedding virus on them and that and then she might have opened the same door to the same store or restaurant or something like that am I way out in weird field by thinking that this is what's going on and there's actually probably hundreds or maybe even thousands of Wuhan virus cases to be found around this Air Force Base and maybe even all around the country as a result of this decision by Alex Azar at HHS and Mike Pompeo at state not to fly the infected people back in their own separate plane so I would like, if it's okay with you, Tom, to begin with the facts of what we know, because good. in every public health emergency, it's always good that we begin with the science and the facts and understanding that this is a very quickly evolving situation, that COVID-19, which is the new coronavirus, is new, that it was discovered just two months ago, and that there is a lot that we know about it now, but also a lot that we don't know about it. What we know about COVID-19 is that it is a respiratory virus. It spreads like the flu, like a cold, from person to person through the respiratory route. So if you cough, you sneeze, and somebody is standing right there, and I know this sounds a little bit gross, but the respiratory droplets land on their mouth, on their nose, then they might contract the virus that way. Also, if you cough onto your hand and then you shake someone else's hand, then they put their hand to, to their mouth and their nose. That's how they get that as well. Right, and I understand um, the average person touches their face 20 times an hour, a habit we all need to break. That's, that's exactly right. And so there are things that we can do to prevent ourselves from getting the coronavirus, just as we would prevent to prevent ourselves from getting the flu or a cold, which is frequent hand washing with warm water and soap, and also staying home and staying away from others who are ill. So right. that's what we know about the virus. And you were asking about the transmission and the likelihood of transmission. What we understand from the pattern of transmission so far is that this is a very infectious virus that one person who has coronavirus could transmit it to an average of two to three other people, which means that it is a contagious illness. Something else that we found about it is that, and this is both good and bad, is that there are people with mild or no symptoms who also have COVID-19, the novel coronavirus. Now, the good thing about it is that it's not nearly as lethal as deadly as SARS and MERS, which are other types of coronaviruses. It is looking like the fatality rate for this coronavirus is about 2% compared to 10% for SARS or 30 to 40% for MERS. So it's significantly lower. The bad news is that because there are people walking around who may have minimal or no symptoms, they may think they have a cold or they may not have any symptoms at all, but they could still be transmitting 
this virus to other people, which makes detection challenging. Actually, there was just a case that was um, that was reported in California a couple of days ago. That's likely to be the first case of community transmission within the U.S., meaning that it's not tied to travel anywhere, at least no known travel anywhere, that it's person-to-person spread within the U.S. And we know that there are more than 47 countries, as of last count, that already have coronavirus being in their countries, and that the spread in the communities in these countries is also happening too. So that's what we know about coronavirus. Now, you referenced a very specific instance, and I want to, again, clarify some details. One is that this coronavirus is believed to have started in a particular place in Wuhan, China. But the World Health Organization is very careful not to call it by the location where it started for fear of stigmatizing the individuals who live in that region, because it's not like the individuals caused the virus. The virus started in that area. It could have started anywhere. And so that's why the name that the World Health Organization has given it is COVID-19, or people are also referring to it as the novel coronavirus. The individuals that you were referring to who were evacuated did not come from Wuhan, China. They were on board a cruise ship. Oh, um, thank you for correcting me on that. I've seen news reports that have said both. and And so thank you. And I just I think that's important because, again, we don't given the amount, as you have reported so much, given the amount of inaccurate information that's out there with conspiracy theories and others, right. especially for something that's as dire as a public health emergency. We just want I, I just wanted to clarify that. So these were individuals who are on board the cruise ship. And, you know, it's here's the thing about public health emergencies and any types of, of emergencies. Officials public health leaders, leaders in general, have to make spur-of-the-moment decisions based on the best information they have available at that time. They are often under extreme time pressure to make a decision one way or another. Hindsight is always twenty twenty. But in the moment, you do the best that you can, and the best that we can expect from our leaders is that they hear the expert guidance of all those around them, then they make a really tough decision. Now, sometimes with this administration, but with any administration, sometimes you look and you say, huh, that decision was just wrong. Like well, here's what, one of the things that we know is that the CDC was so upset that the State Department and HHS decided to co-mingle these people on the same plane, that they issued an official request that their name not be on any press release about the repatriation of these Americans. So, Tom, let me first, in my answer right now to you, let me first state that I am not known to be a defender of the Trump administration. I have no ties to the Trump administration. I'm in previous roles that I've held. I've sued the Trump administration. And so Uh. in my stating the following, I am not defending them. I'm just explaining what is my understanding of what could have taken place. Right. I'm not suggesting that they were malicious. I think they just weren't Mm -hmm. listening to the science, which seems to be a characteristic of this administration. Frankly, that may be true in general, but I don't think that this is the right example to be using. And here's why. In a situation like this, the decision to evacuate the individuals on the same flight or not is in that gray zone. It is not in the black to white category of this is categorically wrong or categorically right. It is in that gray zone where public health experts 
will have different opinions about what the right thing to do is. Okay. Now, there were other health officials, as I understand, who were part of that discussion who said they think that it was reasonable, given that these individuals were already on the plane and that they were separated in a whole different area and there were infectious disease doctors on board. I mean, it's a reasonable decision either way. Okay. Now, I do think that there's a lot that the Trump administration has not done right with this response, but I don't think that this is the... Uh, so what about sending to? social workers to meet them at the Air Force Base with no protective clothing and no training? I think you're referring to whistleblower complaint that came through yesterday. Yes. Um, I don't know the specifics other than what I've read in the news, but certainly it is irresponsible to send frontline workers to be exposed potentially to a virus without protection. As you well right. said, these are individuals who, I mean, if we can't protect our own healthcare workers, we're really doing disservice to everyone in this country, but also this is an infectious disease risk too. Yeah. So bottom line, we're going to hit a break here in a minute and a half. We're talking with Dr. Lena Wen, ER physician, public health professor at George Washington University, previously Baltimore's health commissioner. Dr. Wen, what should we all be doing to prepare for this as individuals and families? Yeah, so I'm going to say what I wish the president has been telling the American people, because his messaging has been very muddled. But here's what he should have said. He should have said that the risk to the everyday American right now is low. However, things are quickly evolving. This disease has spread to more than 47 countries, and it could well be spread in the form of an outbreak here. He should have said that the U.S. has been leading an effective response so far, but that things are going to get worse because that's the nature of a disease outbreak. Now is not the time to panic. Now is the time for us to prepare, just as we would for any emergency. So bottom line is coronavirus is now on the verge of a global epidemic. It is in the U.S. It will come to, to the U.S. Don't fear it and panic, but rather prepare. And the best antidote to that fear is the truth. That's what the Trump administration should be doing. They should be giving us the truth. And instead of trying to paint a rosy picture of what's happening, they should be telling us exactly what is happening, what their decisions are, how they're changing their decisions over time based on evolving evidence, and what the American people, all of us, should be doing because yeah. epidemics are an all hands on deck situation. I've been, you know, there are reports of uh, shortages in the pharmaceutical supply line. There's 150 drugs manufactured in China and nowhere else in the world, and apparently they're not getting out of China right now. My doctor gave me a 90 day prescription for the blood pressure medication I take just in case. The health insurance company refused to pay for it, but I paid for it. You know, we've got a week or so's worth of food at home, just canned stuff that we're going to use anyway. That seems like reasonable, you know, paper products, things like that. If, if people freak out, if it comes to this, to my community here in Portland and stores start closing and stuff, as has happened across northern Italy. And I'm telling people to get healthy, stop smoking, start exercising, eat your vegetables. Is that all reasonable stuff? Absolutely. That's just good health practice and good public health practice. Okay, cool. Dr. Lena Wen, Professor Lena Wen, I, I should call her. Thank you so much for dropping by today. All right, take care. Great Bye -bye. talking with you. D-R-L-E-A-N-A-W-E-N -E -E is her Twitter handle. On the line with us is Lori Garrett, Pulitzer Prize winning science writer and author of three books including The Coming Plague, a book that I read some years ago that really woke me up and provoked me to invite Laurie on our show multiple times over the years. Laurie, welcome back. 
Hi, Tom. You've been singing this song for decades. You understand what's going on here. I have so much respect for you and the kind of perspective you bring to this. I'm curious your thoughts on how this administration is handling this, not necessarily the political attack kind of stuff, although it seems crazy that Health and Human Services would send a group of social workers whose main job is separating children from their parents at the border to California to meet a plane filled with people who just came off a, a cruise ship where there was a, a virus and 14 of those people are known to be infected. Your thoughts, and again, correct me if you think I'm wrong or being hysterical here, seems to be, or probably is, since this Air Force base was 10 miles from the town where this woman who's in the hospital now got sick, and there's no known way that she got it. It seems to me like one, maybe one of these people that HHS sent in there you know, went shopping in town, touched a door handle. She comes along, she touches the same door handle, and boom, now she's in the hospital. Does that make sense? Well, Tom, let me step back for a minute. You know, a month ago, our number one narrative was attacking China because Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party did, in fact, cover up the full extent of their Wuhan epidemic. And we are facing this crisis in the world because the Chinese Communist Party leadership put party loyalty to the Communist Party above stopping an epidemic and saving lives. Now we have Mulvaney and Pompeo and the CPAC meeting all saying, and Fox News ranting, echoing the voice of Rush Limbaugh, all saying this is a hoax. The word is hoax. And Mulvaney went further to say, the Democrats and the liberal media have run out of things to attack the president for because they lost on impeachment and they lost on the Mueller report. So now they're creating an epidemic hoax and attacking the competence of the administration. Now, which is worse? Which is worse? The Communist Party politicizing the outbreak in Wuhan and imperiling the whole world, or the Republican Party backing a president who is absolutely insistent that there's nothing to worry about here. There's nothing behind the curtain, folks. America is somehow invulnerable to something that is threatening the whole rest of the world. The incompetence and the nightmare of this is staggering. Politics has no place in an epidemic. I don't care whether it's communist politics or Republican politics. Get it off the shelf. We need competence and we need to save lives. Yeah. Yeah. Mick Mulvaney at his uh, CPAC speech actually said they're hyping this to bring down the president. This is crazy. So to my theory about community transmission in this uh, California patient, your thoughts on that? Well, I'm not in the middle of that investigation, of course, so I don't want to second guess anything that the California investigators are coming up with. Mm. There obviously was community transmission, and it does seem highly coincident, at least, that the folks that had come from the Princess Cruise Liner were just 10 miles from the site of this index case. It would be cavalier to ignore that possibility, is the way I would put it. Okay. Can you just speak to, you use the phrase community transmission, and, you know, most of us are not public health experts like you are. It's not a phrase that I think most people have heard before, and they're just starting to hear now. What does that mean? So there's two different key dynamics going on in this epidemic as it becomes a pandemic. I would argue it already is a pandemic. Yes. One dynamic is cases basically seeding from the source, meaning individuals that are traveling from China or have been in China bringing a case, an isolated case, 
to some place that doesn't have any circulation of the virus. So that is what we were seeing, you know, maybe 10, 15 days ago, as most of the world dynamic outside of China. But now what we're seeing all over the world is spread within communities where it no longer has any connection to China at all. And in fact, in some of the outbreaks, there's no detectable original source in any way, as far back as you can trace it, connected to China. Right. This happened in Italy, too, right? It's not exactly proven, but it does appear that it all started with a business meeting that an individual took over lunch with another individual in Milan, and over the course of a lunch conversation, the second guest at the table had been in China. A whole month passed incubating virus before then the second individual goes into a hospital outside Milan, and then it explodes inside the hospital due to a lack of appropriate infection control. And I think now, this is the real alarm button, and rather than dwell on politics, I want to save lives here, Tom. Mm-hmm. So here's the alarm button I would like to push right now. To everybody who is listening to this show, who is a health practitioner, whether you're a dentist, you write prescriptions, you're a nurse, a doctor, you administer a hospital, whatever your role may be, you need to make sure that your entire staff is not only trained in proper infection control, but from now on, assumes anybody coming into your office, into your practice, into your hospital, might be infected. And that means you have to up your game on your infection control, because what we're seeing all over the world is that the real explosions of cases happens inside of medical facilities, because doctors and nurses have to be up close and personal with patients, But in routine practice, you don't wear PPEs. In routine practice, you don't wear the super heavy-duty surgical masks. In routine practice, you don't wear two pairs of latex gloves. And in routine practice, you don't meet your patients wearing a surgical gown. But everybody, practices that put you in close contact with patients, you need now to train your staff. You don't know. You're not going to see a patient with a big coronavirus on your face. Right. You need to be careful. I'm on book tour last week and this week. I'm uh, leaving for Chicago tomorrow. And last week I was signing books in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Seattle. I know that my flight from Los Angeles to San Francisco, I don't want to name the airline, but there were a fairly large number of people, maybe 15 or 20 people, who had come off a flight from Japan and transferred onto this flight. I don't know if I should be worried about that or not. I'm guessing that my flight from San Francisco back to Portland or up to Seattle probably had people who were connecting on international flights. With the SARS epidemic, it seemed like airports and hotels were one of the major vectors. What should people do? What should I do as I get on an airplane tomorrow morning to keep myself safe and keep people around me safe? Yes, I do a lot of travel as well, and I you can imagine how many people call me to say, you know, my son is about to go to fill in the country. Should right. they go? Right. So here's my advice that I've been giving to everybody. First, there's the just pain in the neck aspect, which is flights are getting canceled. Countries are closing airports. So when you book a flight, be sure you get flight insurance now so that you don't get stiffed with the bill and you have a possibility of changing your flight. Um, because there are going to be a lot of disruptions now in the entire travel industry. As for safety, we have no evidence so far 
of transmission within North America on flight routes. But isn't that because we only have 400 test kits in the whole country? Well, that's a lot of problem, Tom, and it's huge. Yeah. You know, Japan, South Korea, Singapore, even Switzerland have tested thousands of people. And everywhere they test, they end up finding cases. Maybe not huge numbers, maybe one here and one there. But the point is, there's going to be transmission. Yeah, Lori, your phone is breaking well, up. I'm sitting still. Oh, okay. But who knows? It's just your cell provider then. Anyhow, continue. Just our third world telephone. Yeah. So, in summary, what do we do? Everybody should take this very seriously. Do not count on it either for you. Meanwhile, teach your children infection control, mm. your office staff infection control. Laurie Garrett, I know you can hear me. Thank you so much for being with us. I have so much respect for you and for the work that you've done over the years and for the voice of sanity you bring to this, and I'm grateful that you dropped by. Thank you. Thank you, and I commend your book, The Coming Plague, and all of your books to everybody who's watching. They're really, really worth checking out. Laurie Garrett's website is L-A-U-R-I-E Garrett, G-A-R-R-E-T-T.com, and you can tweet her at Laurie underscore Garrett. That's her Twitter handle, so check it out. Her writing is spectacular. That book, The Coming Plague, when I read that, I think it was well over a decade, maybe even two decades ago. I don't want to say it scared me. What it did is it gave me an extraordinary understanding that I didn't have prior to that of basically how epidemics happen specifically at a granular level. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.